Hello, and welcome to Global's fourth podlet. I'm your host, Francesca Gortsunian, and today we're going to take a deep dive into one of the more impactful political trends sweeping across the globe, political party fatigue. So what do we mean when we say political party fatigue? We're referring to the trend where citizens are turning away from traditional parties and traditional party systems and finding their voices in new and emerging political parties. When they're operating well, parties will provide an umbrella under which like-minded citizens can unite and then support candidates and elected officials that share their priorities. But parties are not a guarantee for effective governance. There are many ways in which parties can actually be counterproductive to a healthy democracy, including protecting elites' interests and undercutting the political independence of governing institutions. Around the world, we're seeing significant shifts in the established party systems. From Latin America to Southeast Asia, Northern Europe to Sub-Saharan Africa, we're seeing public support oscillate between established institutional parties and these new and emerging parties, challenging the age-old assumptions about how parties relate so easily to voters. So why are traditional political parties losing ground? What is pushing the rise of these new parties in response? And do we even still need political parties to make a democracy run? Joining me to unpack some of these questions is Thibaut Muzerg, IRI's resident program director based in Bratislava, Slovakia. Thibaut not only has a long history working for and with parties across Europe, he's also recently published a book called La Quadrature des Classes, or The Squaring of the Classes, where he looks at these issues specifically. Thibault, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So to start us off, I want to make sure that our listeners and I are on the same page about what we're referring to when we talk about political parties and party systems. So for our listeners from the United States, that typically evokes an image of two parties that are relatively easy to define ideologically. However, that's not exactly the case throughout much of the world. So can you talk a bit about the various models for party politics in Europe and how they might differ from the U.S. experience? Okay, so there are roughly two models uh, that we can talk about. The first one is relatively similar to the U.S. It's a catch-all bipartisan system. Uh, You have two stable parties that are competing for power with an occasional smaller party that is needed to make a ruling coalition. However, what we've seen since 2008 is that the, the political systems have atomized once again. And more and more, Europe is following the political system that it was used to until the 1980s or until the Second World War, with a very atomized political system, with different poles of attraction and coalition building happening after the elections and not before. That tradition has always been present, if you look, for example, at Dutch politics. But now this is something that we are seeing more and more all around Europe. You've said a great word, atomized. That just makes me think of how politics are going on around the world currently. We've seen a lot of society changing and parties not being able to keep up with what their constituents are asking for. And that also feeds into this atomization that you've mentioned. So what do you think are some of the factors that have led to the rise of fringe parties um, that seem to appeal to supporters from the edges of society? If you follow the definition that Max Weber gave about political parties, that they they reflect the competing aspirations of competing sections of society, then basically those new parties have been able to rise because some segments of society that became larger and larger felt that they were ignored and lost trust in the old parties. And usually what happened was that for a while, these categories of the population just left politics together and they took refuge in abstention. And a few years after 
going into abstention, here comes a politician or a group of politicians, a party that speaks to them in a language that they wanted to hear for a relatively long period of time that they didn't hear from mainstream politicians or from classical politicians. And boom, the process is actually very simple. Yeah. Can you actually provide some examples of that and where you've seen that most recently? There are there are plenty of examples, but to give you two different examples from completely different uh, sections of society, the rise of alternative for Deutschland in Germany is the product of the German white working class feeling completely abandoned by the Social Democratic Party, which was their defender during the post-war era, and which originally had found a lot of voters in uh, in East Germany after reunification. So what happened was that this population stopped supporting SPD. They took refuge either in, in abstention or they supported Die Linke, which was the party that saw itself as the inheritor of the Communist Party. And seeing that Die Linke was not working for them, uh, the uh, right-wing alternative for Germany started speaking to them directly. They answered their call and they started voting in big numbers. So that's one example. Another example is very recent in Slovakia. The murder of uh, journalist Jan Kuciak last year basically made all the elements of urban Slovakia realize that they needed to do something politically if they wanted to clean up their politics. And they have started supporting new parties that have entered the political field over the past year. One of them is Progressive Slovakia, and they've already managed to get a mayor of Bratislava elected, Matiusz Valo, and Zuzana Chaputova uh, was elected as president just a couple of weeks ago. Well, thank you for the examples. That actually contextualizes it well. Um, I want to go back to traditional parties for a minute, though. So as we see the rise of these newer parties that are more responsive to what voters are looking for, would you agree that traditional parties are becoming less relevant? Traditional parties are becoming less relevant, but they, they have themselves to blame for this. They, they have not adapted to the realities of society post-2008 crisis, and they are paying the price for it right now. So what are some of the challenges that these traditional parties are now facing? They are facing three main challenges. The first one is communication in the age of social media. We live in a in the era of Twitter, of Facebook. It's no longer a 24-hour news cycle. Sometimes it's just a couple of hours news cycle. And, and political parties, being institutions, they are heavy machines in which the validation of a text can take several days. They find themselves not able to compete with newer parties who do not have these heavy machineries or heavy chains of command uh, and who can put out a very strong message in a matter of minutes. In many ways, these old parties find themselves in the position of having heavy tankers that have to compete with light skippers in a sailing race. They're very difficult to maneuver and they don't have the advantage when it comes to uh, reacting to a much shorter news cycle. So that's one problem. Second problem is on ideas. As the aspirations of society have changed, the old parties find their message completely outdated, found very difficult to abandon. Two examples, immigration and inequalities, which is where you see the French parties on the right and the left coming. But finally, there's a third challenge, which is more sociological. If parties are the reflection of sociological cleavages who try to compete and impose their vision and aspirations, then we have a problem with older parties because society has been profoundly changed by the 2008 financial crisis and the subsequent 
events that happen. That may be the migrant crisis in 2015, that can be the debt crisis in places like Greece or Spain in 2011. There's been a, a number of gigantic recompositions that have happened. And the old parties have been very much blind to these changes. That ties nicely into my next question for you, which is more centered around the financial crisis of 2008 that you'd mentioned. Can you talk a little bit about what effects that financial crisis had on politics in general? The crisis did not have a, an immediate effect. For a number of years, politics continued as usual because there was no gigantic change in sociological composition. However, what we saw was a progressive slide that basically made society much less homogeneous. My thesis is that four classes have emerged during the past 10 years, and these four classes are completely changing our political spectrum. You have the creative class, they are the big winners of globalization and the crisis, uh, and you find themselves in urban centers working in creative uh, occupations. They are economically allied, but socially at odds with the uh, provincial or uh, suburban middle class uh, that is the traditional middle class as we knew it before 2008. Facing these two classes, you have two other classes that are what I call rebel classes. The white working class or new minority that has uh, become much more politically active over the past five, six years, and that is supporting more and more fringe parties from the right. And uh, millennials, young, educated, urbanites that do not have access to the, uh, the the riches of the creative class and that are supporting uh, left fringe parties. These two new categories, so to speak, are changing the way we look at politics because politics is no longer the matter of two parties or two poles of attraction, but four. And that makes things much more complicated. And there are new issues that are arising out of this. Going back to what you were saying, these new parties, in addition to challenging politics, they also carry with them a host of their own challenges. So in your opinion, what risks are there in a political system being built over these new parties and movements that may not necessarily be based on a longer, longer term vision? First of all, we, we need to understand that these parties are in many ways a, a way for citizens to reappropriate themselves the, uh, the democratic process. In other words, to take back control. And that is actually a good thing. Uh, it may also be that older political parties will adapt and either will find a new alliance system or will change themselves in order to restabilize the system. What would happen if that were not the case? With a lot of, of new single-issue parties, politics can become very short-term focused. And therefore, all the debates about the strategic functions of the states are going to be neglected. And this at a moment when strategy and geopolitics is getting back into our political conundrum. This is the first danger. The other danger is that having, you know, so many new parties competing and changing all the time, we'll find ourselves in a in a in a situation that is very much like that of the French Third Republic, uh, with a very high political fragmentations, governments that are very difficult to form, and that actually leads to a less democratic system, in the sense that if you do have a vacuum of power and a vacuum of direction on the side of the democratically elected leaders of the country, then that means that someone is going to fill in that vacuum. And if you look, for example, in 1900s France, 
that was the civil service. And the civil service takes more and more control over policies. And there is less and less oversight by politicians and encourages more populist backlash. So we come to the situation in which we go full circle. There is There are new parties emerge uh, because uh, there is a feeling that we need to take back control and that the, the traditional parties are, are not giving that control. But the more atomization results from these new parties, the more difficult it is to govern and the more unelected officials can have power over our lives. And that's a real risk because it cuts more our institutions from the people. So with all of this in mind, I mean, this kind of begs the question, do you think that political parties are still the right mechanism for active government now? Political parties are a bit like democracy. They are the worst possible mechanism with the exception of all others. Uh, the, <laughs> the fact is you have historical examples in which there were no parties. The Greek democracy during antiquity, the experiment of the, uh, of the Roman Republic again in antiquity. If you want to have a democracy today, uh, there are other ex- experiments of republics and, uh, and different things. But since the beginning of the 19th century, political parties are an integral part of democracy because they serve not only as ideological vehicles, but also as sociological vehicles for uh, sections of society to express themselves. If you take that out, then basically you find yourself in a position that is actually very much alike that of the Roman Republic just before the end of the Republic, in which you will have individuals who are going to take over these uh, sociological cleavages. They are going to use them for their own benefit, but after them, there is not going to be follow-up, and therefore you will have a more personalized politics, which lead to, if not outright dictatorship, at least to more personalized power and ultimately probably more authoritarian government. So I do think that parties are the right mechanisms. They just need to adapt to the new situation. And uh, while we're talking about adapting to new situations, uh, this is not the first time this has happened. Great Britain, the United States, much of Europe went uh, through this kind of change in the, in the 1920s, the rise of radio the rise of the working class as a as a meaningful sociological category and ideological changes all this led to the growth of uh, a lot of parties uh, a lot of dangers as well particularly in the 1930s and ultimately the system that triumphed was was the system that allowed for a contest between political parties because these parties were actually making these systems more stable so there is a, a, a real need uh, for political parties collectively to rethink their role in uh, in society. And as long as they will not do that, then uh, we will have uh, a situation in which uh, questions that the one you just asked uh, are extremely relevant. What are some ways that the traditional parties can adapt to fit this new global order? The first one, uh, I would say, is to question their uh, their taboos. The second one is uh, to realize that they do not, as political parties, represent the national interest, but rather they represent the interest and vision of society of a certain section of people. And that basically cuts them in some way from the business of government, which is something different. Political parties provide ways to power, but once they have power, they need to uh, uh, use it in a different fashion than when they are political parties. These two things, I think, are, are essential. And then 
there is a competing challenge for, for political parties. The old political parties need to modernize themselves and uh, get in line with the new 24 hours and less news cycle, while the new parties need to become more institutional in order to, to be more reliable coalition partners and to stabilize the system. So I would say these elements are, are important to get things working again, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Thibault, you mentioned taboos that parties are unwilling to address a couple times now um, in this podlet. Could you go a little bit into more detail about what taboos you're speaking about specifically? Let's take three examples. Uh, on the right, immigration uh, has been a taboo and it has uh, led to the, the rise of or anti-systemic parties on the right. Again, they are anti-systemic because they are talking about things that the establishment refuses to talk about. So that's for the right. On the left, social inequality and the inequalities engendered by a uh, uh, economically liberal uh, uh, economic system over the past 30 years is clearly the taboo that has led both to the rise of Jeremy Corbyn within Labour and the rise of parties like Podemos in Spain, like Jean-Luc Mélenchon's France Insoumise in France, uh, or Cinque Stelle movement in Italy. The uh, demand for transparency and to tackle corruption uh, is another taboo. Uh, if you look at these three taboos, three thematics, you find the rise of three different types of emerging parties. Uh, to immigration, you see the rise of the AFD in Germany. To inequality, I said uh, Podemos, Francais Soumise in France. And to the demands of more transparency, you usually have the rise of new centrist parties like the Udaranos in Spain, Progressive Slovakia, or Emmanuel Macron's En Marche in France. So we've covered a lot of ground in our discussion. And my last question for you is, what is one thing that you would like our listeners to remember from this conversation? Political parties are certainly evil to many uh, because they represent the worst in our societies. They represent how disunited, how divided we are. And this is something that works pretty much everywhere in the world. This is the way political parties are made for. They represent the conflicting interests of segments of society. That doesn't mean that this evil is not necessary. Each time something else has been tried uh, over the past 200 years, the experiment has usually ended with catastrophe. Whether it's uh, getting rid of parties altogether or having one unique party, the experiments usually have been bad. So you may find political parties evil and bad. It's a necessary evil and a necessary bad. Well, once again, thanks to Thibault for taking the time to talk to us today. Don't forget to let us know what you think of the show by leaving a review or sending us an email to podcast at iri.org. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at iriglobal for up-to-date information on what's going on around the world. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.